anyway, she, you know, she was telling me what she had gone through so far. And I, I just asked her, I said, sis, what if you don't make it? What if you don't make it? What if this is it? And she was quiet for a minute. And then she said, I really don't want to think about that. And I said, I don't want to think about it either. But I think somebody needs to be thinking about it. I said, so let's don't think about it, but let's think about thinking about it. And I asked her, what does it feel like to think about thinking about it? And that opened the door to some of the most incredible conversations I've ever had with my sister. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Active Perspective Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh Simonik, behavior analyst. Today, you'll notice that we've changed the format a bit. Now, this podcast is about how people across the planet successfully address the universal issue of human suffering. Now, I come from the perspective of contextual behavioral science, but there are several guests who haven't even heard of this, much less come from this perspective. Yet, they all seem to apply the same basic principles of interrelatedness, cooperation, compassion, mindfulness, and acceptance of the pain, as well as the joy in life. Today, we're talking with Valerie Lovely, statewide campaign director for the Death with Dignity National Center, and the founder and executive director of Maine Death with Dignity. Now, Death with Dignity is about giving terminally ill people the choice and how and when they want to die. It's about allowing loved ones to be present, holding the person's hand, and guiding them through the transition from life to death. We can't discuss living well unless we also talk about dying well. These are two sides of the same coin. We discuss the history of the movement, its success, its challenges. We discuss several of the individuals like Britton Menard, the young 29-year-old who, when she was diagnosed with terminal brain tumor, decided to move from California to Oregon in 2014 so she could opt for end-of-life care on her terms. We also talk about how she and others transformed the movement of death with dignity. We also share our own grief and get personal with our own family members who have died and spurred us to advocate for the movement of medical aid in dying. If you want to see the video of this with additional graphics, go to the Act and Perspective channel on YouTube. The music here is Blue Skies for Everyone by the Austin legend Bomb Schneider from his album Lonelyland. He has a website, bombschneider.com, and a podcast, I'm Okay, You're Okay, I'm Not Okay, You're Not Okay, that's totally fascinating and funny to listen to. So without further ado, here's Valerie Lovelace. Enjoy. How are you, Hugh? I'm very good. How are you? Good. Good to see you. Good to see you. And you go by Val, don't you? Val, yes. Val, okay. 
Yes. And so you, so Val is the founder and executive director of a nonprofit formerly known as It's My Death um, uh, that uh, was founded in Maine in 2014, correct? That's correct. And now it's changed and serving on the state as Maine Death with Dignity. And so you joined Death with Dignity National Center in September of 2019. You serve yes. as a statewide campaigns director um, and you swear where you coordinate uh, focused campaign efforts in other states trying to pass legislation. Yes. Um, and you also oversee grassroots support programs. Uh, you're also the mother of three children, three adult children. Yeah. You're an accomplished artist. Yes. Yes. All right. Welcome. Everybody has a story. I'm very curious, setting the stage of what your personal story is. Sure. So my, uh, my personal story is around the death of my sister who died in 2009, um, just before she, or just after her 49th birthday. Um, she, she essentially went from diagnosis to death in about three and a half weeks. Um, it, it was all very unexpected. Um, and through that process, what I learned is first of all, how, how alone she felt because the people around her were terrified to talk to her about dying. She, you know, she was 49 years old. She was going to beat this thing, uh, beat the odds. She was going to fight through it. And, and nobody wanted to talk about what would, would it be like not to, to be able to do that, you know, to, to bring your life to a close at the age of 49. Um, when that was clearly not in her plans. Um, and so that, that experience really got me very interested in sort of breaking the taboo around talking about dying, um, simply because I saw how, um, how people couldn't be present with her because of their own fears around uh, her losing her life. Um, I, the, and the other thing that you know, I, I get asked this often because I, people sort of assume that she had a bad death and that's why I'm interested in the death with dignity movement. And in, in fact, the opposite is true. If death can be described as good, a good death, she had a good death. It, it was very quick and painless. Um, she, she was not on hospital. There just wasn't time for anything. She just went very quickly. And what I, what I don't have around that is, are traumatic memories of the way she died. She, she was uh, awake and aware and responsive um, to me up to her very last breath, um, which is amazing. You know? And so while I went through the grieving process and, and the trauma of losing uh, my best friend in, in my sister, um, what I what I don't have as a residual is um, disturbing memories around how much she suffered, and and I think that's what really compels me with the the movement for medical aid in dying and death with dignity is that patients and their families don't have that they don't have the trauma related to uh, difficult dying. Can you talk a little bit? So start off with what the movement is about and what the movement is not about. 
that well that's a pretty large parameter actually so Death with Dignity National Center, our focus is on passing legislation that's modeled on the original Oregon law, which uh, went into effect finally in 1997. And that is essentially um, a, a terminally ill patient with approximate six, six month prognosis, which is really that same um, medical system marker for when a patient would be eligible for hospice or, or should be thinking about that uh, potential. Um, someone who is capable of making their own healthcare decisions and, and can be in the driver's seat uh, through the process of qualifying for life-ending medication and ultimately choose when or whether to use that medication. Um, on, a, on a broader scale, of course, across the, the globe, there, there are people who are interested in um, being able to maintain agency over themselves even if they get dementia or if they have, you know, really chronic debilitating diseases that, uh, that frankly have made life uh, exhausting for them, even though they don't have the terminal diagnosis. Um, and so the, the movement for, I guess, self-determination uh, is really broad when it comes to end of life. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, your experience, what have you seen um, with regard to other people and uh, what other people are, are advocating for? Well, as, as a former hospice volunteer myself, I can tell you that I've witnessed some ways that people die that frankly, I wish I could unwitness. Um, I, you know, I recall vividly sitting with a, an ALS patient who two weeks prior to her death, um, her joy in life was to be able to tell jokes and enjoy humor. And by the time she was within two weeks of dying, she couldn't breathe well enough to laugh anymore. And for her, I mean, that, that defined um, her quality of life. And I, I asked her, you know, if there was anything I could do to, to make her feel more comfortable. And in between trying to get breath, she at, she joked, she tried to joke to that I could put her pillow over her face for her because it was just so agonizing for her at the end of her life. And of course we, you know, laughed about it and I didn't do that. Um, but, but for me, it really highlighted like who knows better what you need when you're dying than, than you, right? Um, and, and I don't understand necessarily why that is such a difficult leap that um, if, if I have agency over my life, my entire life, and I make critical decisions for myself my entire life without any intervention, why is it so difficult that I should be able to make those decisions at the very end of my life as well? Yeah, I hear you. I, this, this is something that's been on my mind for, for quite some time. I'll tell you briefly. Tell you my story and why. Yeah, this is I, I'd like what like to understand what brings you to this question. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, this whole podcast is about how you know reaching Prescott and how people relate to suffering, right? And, and how we work with suffering, right? So this was important, always important to me. You know, nineteen eighty-seven, July tenth, nineteen eighty-seven. My mother died, um, mm -hmm. and she had a year-long brain tumor. Um, that where she gradually, I saw her gradually, you know, break down. 
right. uh, from month to month. And so, so uh, you know, when she was first diagnosed, I really didn't, didn't really have the wherewithal to really understand what this means and where right. she was going to go from here. But she died at home. We took care of her at home. And so I saw, you know, I was at high school at the time. So I saw every single day and I had to, you know, take care of her, wash her, treat her bed sores. And so I saw that loss right. uh, and that debilitation every day. And, and, you know, I also saw, you know, the moment where she was uh, still conscious and uh, she was scared and she felt like she was trapped in a body, mm -hmm. you know, and she didn't really have the kinds of choices, the, the autonomy that she wanted. Right. And, you know, when she died, it was very painful to witness. The, the, whole, the whole experience was very painful and unnecessary. And I told myself at that point, I want to make my own decision. Mm -hmm. No, I want to. I want to have that choice. If I'm allowed to have that choice, I want to exercise that choice. Right. And it seems to me that there is a there's a no brainer here. When we exercise autonomy, agency over critical decisions over um, our entire lives, we're allowed to do that, right? But we're not allowed to exercise choice in regard to our own death. Right. And death is something that's so universal that you know, everybody can relate to a story. Everybody's witnessed death at some point. And death is never, well, it's hardly ever pretty. Right. Um, but, um, you know, when you're talking about something that is um, where there's so many stories of people who can create their own context of how they die. It's just a beautiful thing. Yes. I guess this really, you know, uh, leads me to my next question with you is, so me and you were on the same page, but there is a definite pushback. Yes. Definite opposition. What is that all about? My, my feeling is that opposition is about um, moral questions or religious ideals around whether humans should be able to intervene when it comes to our dying. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, that's the opposition primarily that we see in this movement. It, it may look different, uh, you know, depending on who's speaking or who is a, opposing a, a bill, um, but it is, it is about whether we should have agency over our dying. Mm -hmm. Um, well, you know, I was reading some of the opposition arguments, and so, and you know, and many of many of the opposition arguments related to legal matters. But all these kind of oppositional arguments seem to kind of break down when you really when you talk about the realities of death with dignity. Tell me more about that. That uh, um, kind of any issues or or the realities of of what we see. Well, it, it is true that when you when you really take take the law and break it down into its the step by step process that a patient goes through in order to qualify, all the opposition arguments break down. They just first of all, in the past uh, twenty five since nineteen ninety seven, the history in this country is opposition can't point to a single 
court case. They can't point to an arrest record. They can't point to a situation where the law failed to safeguard a patient, their family, or their physician. And that's because it hasn't. The law in its, in its structure is, just, is very simple. It basically says, this is the process. This is the medical standard of care that, that patients and physicians will follow in order to qualify a patient to take the medication on their own. And when that death occurs under those circumstances, it's not subject to these other criminal laws. So it's not a murder, it's not a suicide, it's not an assisted suicide, it's not a physician abandoning his or her patient. It is a medically authorized and expected death under, under the law. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, we, we could argue and discuss um, philosophically what is right or what is wrong about humans wanting to have control over their death. We could do that until the cows come home. And we, we may never resolve that question. But medically and legally within the current system in the United States, it has been resolved right. through, through these, uh, the use of these laws. And the laws are, um, are, are completely optional. So healthcare providers, if they are morally opposed to this type of a decision, they don't have to support a patient's decision. A patient doesn't have to take their medication. The patient is the only one who can request to qualify uh, and to receive that medication. No one can do that on a patient's behalf. So the arguments about you know wanting to off granny for the inheritance, uh -huh. um, I mean, that, that's a reality in our society today anyway, but the law make, doesn't make anybody more vulnerable to yeah. that. It's not a reality within death with dignity. It's it is not. not. Yeah. yeah. And, and, so, and so it seems to me, you know, all the legal arguments you know, uh, would break down um, pretty quickly. They do. It still remains a huge pushback. And I imagine... Um, you know, each state has to really deal with their own um, uh, legalities of that. But so what do you think are the existential reasons, the kind of the root cause of why people have such a, a strong reaction to this? You know, it's, uh, I mean, it, that's probably as varied as as the number of people on the planet. So this, how we die is nothing new and our concerns around the way we die is nothing new. I mean, the first, as far as I'm aware, the first legislative effort in the United States occurred in 1906 in Ohio. The, the bill didn't pass, um, but, and I think, you know, from the, since humans have been dying, there have been questions around how, how to make that process less painful, less of a struggle. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, I, I don't, I think one of the things that has happened is we have so far removed ourselves from the reality of what dying looks like and caring for our loved ones in our homes. Um, and, and we put that in the hands of medicine and behind closed curtains that, that frankly, most of us probably don't know how to help someone die anymore. Um, or to be present to that. Um, I, again, I think the controversy, the, the controversy over it boils down to the moral question of whether we should have agency over that. 
it, it's that simple and that complex. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I was just going to say, sorry, I think, I think it's a mistake to, to talk about this issue at a, say, 30,000 foot view, because we can talk about what's right or wrong or what should or shouldn't happen all day long. But if we bring that down to the personal level, which really it is a personal question, I mean, what dying is more intimate to your life than, than having sex and having children. And, you know, it is the most intimate thing you will ever experience in your lifetime. Right. You'll be wholly dependent on other people, unable to help yourself, and and you're leaving here alone. I, I don't know what's more vulnerable than that. Yeah. Um, and yet you're you're told you can't be a part of that process. You just have to surrender to the fact that that your body's dying, and you know, best of luck to you. Yeah, you <laughs> it, no makes, it makes zero sense. Right. Right. Um, you know. It's, um, yeah, uh, it, yet this remains a very, very controversial. So um, September, I think it was September 19th or some, sometime in September 2019, when the law was finally passed in Maine. Yes. You had a, it, you really had a huge hand in having that law passed, correct? But yet that law passed so narrowly. I mean, it was only by what, one or two votes, correct? It was uh, passed by one house vote, yes. Yes, right, right. Um, what, do you, what do you think was the major turn for that? For um, the I, I think, well, so Maine has been trying to, uh, off and on uh, since 1995, mm -hmm. uh, to, to pass uh, aid and dying legislation. And I think, you know, there's, there are so many things that come come into play in a uh, political system in order for for a bill to turn into a law. Um, so obviously you have to have uh, the support for it, your political climate in the state has to be appropriate for it, the political structure within your house and senate and your administration has to be just right. So we had, I, I got involved in this uh, probably back in 2013 initially with the legislative aspect of this and um, and we had some successes up through uh, up up until 2019, but not enough really to get the bill passed. You know, we had a governor who publicly announced he would veto it if it came to his desk. Uh, that had holds sway over your legislature and and what they're willing to do or not do. Um, and so it wasn't until we ended up with a new administration that it even became possible for the bill to pass. Right. Well, you know, I think it's like in any any social movement when a new idea is introduced, I think our our psychology is like, whoa, wait, this is new. We don't know anything about this. So let's like take steps back and and figure this thing out. You know, I, I think in our country, we're really fortunate that Oregon pioneered this back in the 90s. And and um, when they did that, they they determined to gather information about who was using the law and, and uh, why they were using it and what diseases they had so that over a period of time, we could sort of gather information about how it was working. And so for a long time, Oregon became like the state everybody watched to see if it was really gonna work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then in 2008, Washington came along. They also did data collection, you know? So by the time you fast forward to Maine, we have had, almost cumulatively probably 45 years of information available 
to to inform us on on how it was working. Yeah, right. Yeah. And nice. I I think that's what changes the tide is the the you know the consistency the um, the facts and the fact that you know opposition is saying the same thing today that they said 25 years ago. Nothing's yeah. changed for yeah. them either, right? And, and their argument has just kind of broken down over time and the evidence indicates otherwise. Exactly. And not only that, um, we've learned things that, that, that we didn't expect to learn. So the evidence also suggests that the, when the law passed in Oregon, it acted as a catalyst to help people begin to have conversations about uh, the yeah. end of their lives. It helped physicians talk to patients about the end of their lives and what to expect and what kind of services would be available to the point now where Oregon's um, um, hospice and palliative care delivery is one of the top in the nation, right. which, which is pretty amazing, yeah. right? Yeah, it is, pretty, it is pretty amazing. The whole movement is pretty amazing. And you know, when you're talking about the larger conversation, there are some key people who have been part of that conversation for a while um, and that have single-handedly really kind of uh, turned the tide. One person I can think of really is, um, she's pretty famous, Britton Menard. Right. Uh, you know, January 2014, when she was diagnosed with agliblastoma, and she was a strong advocate for death with dignity, uh, aid in medical dying. Um, and can you talk a little bit more about the individuals in the movement? Sure. So, uh, um, um, Brittany, I think she she continues to be a catalyst in this movement. What what I think really she was able to bring to the forefront is number one. She was a 29 year old young woman who had just had her honeymoon, and then found out she had a glioblastoma. Yeah. So you know, for for the first time now, we have to contemplate oh, you can die really young as a really young, healthy person and something goes wrong in your brain, that's a death sentence. Nice. Um, she chose to move from California, which had just failed a legislative attempt to pass the law with her husband and mother to Oregon to avail herself of the law. And she also chose to make her story public. Mm -hmm. and, and that I think was a, was a huge catalyst in the movement um, if you look, there's a approximately six minute video on YouTube about her story, probably has over 12 million views worldwide. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and so that, that, those personal stories really fuel the movement. Like yet again, here's evidence that we don't always die well, and it doesn't always, um, it's not always the, the comfortable scenario that it can be portrayed as a good death. And that there, there is something we can do as individuals to save ourselves, I guess, from, from that kind of suffering. Right. And it's not always, uh, we have to keep in mind, it's not individuals who are saying, oh, well, just, you know what, um, I'm not going to uh, um, uh, try to live, uh, just uh, to throw in the towel. Right. I mean, Brittany Menard actually went through aggressive treatment, and then she was found a stage four glioblastoma, where it just it, it just overtook her brain, and and then she asked questions: What does that look like for my? What does the end of my life look like? And I wish my mom had that same opportunity back in 1987. What did the end of my life look like? Because yes. it, it's it's horrible not only for her, but 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 for everyone involved. 
And you're talking about, you know, the medical costs um, and, uh, you know, you have to have the time away. My, my dad had to um, pay uh, an ex long, lengthy, extended time away from work, but he was able to do that. So we're kind of lucky, um, but it affected everyone in the family. Right. Um, so um, are there other people besides, I mean, I'm, there, I know there are other Brittany, but, uh, people besides Brittany that really stand out, but what other people in your neck of the woods really stand out to you that really turn the tide of the, moment, of the movement? Um, I, you know, I think any, any figure, so here in Maine, we just recently, there have been uh, two patient stories that were published of um, um, Ron Deprez. I don't know if you heard his story. His uh, daughter is a journalist and, and she wrote an amazing, amazing um, reflection on his accessing the law and what it meant to him as an ALS patient uh, and meaning, me, the meaning that it brought to her and her brother and to her dad as he died. Um, and then uh, Eric Carlson, that was another story that was published here in Maine, who uh, he also had a brain tumor um, and, and began to recognize as the, as the brain tumor affected him, uh, he began to recognize where, where his line in the sand was. Like when I, I think he said something like when I can't stand in front of a menu at McDonald's and make a decision about the ice cream sundae that I want, I know my days are limited. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, it, it, it truly, it doesn't have to be someone famous. It doesn't have to be, you know, it's th these personal stories that are relatable as you mentioned earlier, we all have some story in our family. If we've, if we've lived long enough on the planet, we're going to witness dying. There's, yeah. this, there's no evidence that anybody gets out of that. Yeah. Um, and to, to, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of horror stories I have heard since I've been in this movement of, of how people have died badly and how traumatized their family members have been by that. Um, and I think that that also fuels the movement. You know, when you when you watch your loved one suffer immeasurably mm -hmm. uh, before they finally take their last breath, and that's what you carry with you for the rest of your life as part of your grieving process, mm -hmm. um, that is as compelling as a story like Brittany Menard's, where certainly her family is left with loss and grief, but they're not left with the trauma. Yeah, yeah, right. Now there, uh, I had read recently that uh, approximately six, between 68 and 72%, there's a Gallup poll of mm -hmm. Americans support the death with dignity movement. Yes. Called by, by, by many different names, but, but basically it's the same thing. If everyone had a choice, mm -hmm. everyone was given that opportunity, what percent would you say would exercise that choice? Well, I think, you know, looking at Oregon's data is probably the easiest way to determine that. And if you look at the number of patients who have died in Oregon uh, using the law versus the, the number of patients who die or people who die per year in the state of Oregon, it's less than half a percent. Mm -hmm. So it's a really small number of folks who, who want to avail themselves of the law. And it typically tends to revolve around cancer and neurological uh, like ALS uh, type diseases, because those are, 
those are pretty rugged processes when you um, start going through the paces of losing your body to those diseases. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk um, more about what a patient has is and family is personally going through when they receive a diagnosis and they they um, maybe are asking questions about this type of end of life care. Um, it well gosh I can tell you what I went through with my sister you know first is the I I have a friend who um he he helps people at uh, after death with um home funerals body preparation and uh he said he he says he believes that the funeral starts with the diagnosis and I think I have to agree with him like you know you're we we merrily go along in our lives completely uh, mostly unaware of the fact that we're going to die. I mean, we face, we pass our anniversary date of our death every year, completely unaware that we've done that. You know, if, if you and I were gallons of milk, we'd have an expiration date right on our forehead, right? But it's not that simple for, for adults. And then suddenly you have this devastating diagnosis. So it's like slam on the brakes. Life is not going to go forward in the way that you imagined it might. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, I, I really think that begins the grieving process and it really be, except in rare occasions, that's really the first time that people stop and think about, oh, Lord, what is it going to be like to die? Because generally, I, you know, I don't think that's built into us to do it very often because I think it would make most of us crazy. Um, so there's, Wow, it's it's like I would say it's like a meteor landing in your living room. You know that the, now suddenly all of the dynamics in the family change, the um, the focus of the family changes, the goals of the family change. Um, you know, and, and and depending on the on the family and the people and the individual who's sick, and how. How willing they are to, you know, ask the hard questions or face the hard truth, um, and be willing to to sort of, you know, break their hearts open to the fact that mortality is a reality, and we we don't get to go on. Um, I I think there's just so many things that that can completely shatter a family apart. Um, depending on what happens post diagnosis, it's just. It's challenging to navigate. Yeah. Do you find that uh, some people who are diagnosed are asking a lot of questions and, and want that right to die, but then family opposes, and so there's now a battle? Um, you know, that it, it could be. Um, I think with my sister, so her, her first initial feeling was she wanted to sue her doctor. So she, you know, she had been under the care of a physician. She had not been feeling well. She had gone in several times to see if they could find out what was going on. And it was just, it was just missed. And suddenly then she has a stage four lung cancer diagnosis with metastases in her spine and on her adrenal glands. And, um, you know, the first appointment she had with an oncologist, he told her, I don't know how you're still on two feet with this, this advanced uh, cancer. Um, so, so her, her mind and her, you know, she, she was not 
thinking about what is it going to be like to die? She was thinking about, I'm going to sue this guy and, and I'm going to focus on treatment and, and then I'll get through this. Mm-hmm. Um, when I had an opportunity to go and be with her the last three weeks of her life. And um, I, I will never forget this conversation. I, she was telling me about, you know, another attorney she had spoken to. And um, by the way, you can't, I don't know that there's a state in the country where you can sue a physician for misdiagnosing cancer because it's so hard to find it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, she, you know, she was telling me what she had gone through so far. And I, I just asked her, I said, sis, what if you don't make it? What if you don't make it? What if this is it? And she was quiet for a minute, and then she said, I really don't want to think about that. And I said, I don't want to think about it either, but I think somebody needs to be thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I said, so let's don't think about it, but let's think about thinking about it. And I asked her, what does it feel like to think about thinking about it? And that opened the door to some of the most incredible conversations I've ever had with my sister. And I feel like in the last three weeks of her life, I had an opportunity to get to know her in a way I had never known her in the previous 49. Because suddenly all all the fluff of life falls away, all of the things that we busy our minds with. And we were talking about some real vulnerable stuff and being being like raw and honest and real with each other. Yeah. Um, we humans don't slow down enough to do that very often. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I just noticed that you, you had a very vulnerable moment there too when you, uh, you were talking about your sister and uh, talked a little bit what, what kinds of feelings were brought up for you when you were talking. Uh, you know, there, I, there was a moment where I just, I had this moment of clarity where I recognized as hard as it was for me to be thinking about losing her, mm-hmm. she was having to think about losing everything. Yes. Everything. Hopes, dreams, future, all of it. And, and it helped me really sort of put a, a healthy container, I think, around my grief and and be willing to be present in whatever way she needed um you know and i and i told her a story uh, uh, about a friend of mine who had contacted me and said you know val i have the, i have this friend who's dying with cancer and i just can't help but think if she would just eat better maybe she could get through this but all she wants is apple pie what should i do and my response was bake her an apple pie <laughs> to me it's just that simple and so I told my sister that, and every day I would start the day with her, like, what kind of apple pie do you want today? And sometimes that was, you know, dust the ceiling fan because she felt so awful she hadn't been able to keep up her house. And, and as she looked at the dust on the ceiling fan, it was just too depressing for her, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, so I think just that, that moment of clarity that I had that, that she was dying and she needed someone to accompany her mm-hmm. who was willing to be, um, wow, this is getting really emotional, open to that, yeah. to, be, to be willing to take steps with her, even though we were both terrified. You know, having courage doesn't mean not having fear. Yeah. It means 
taking steps with your fear. That's what courage right. is, wow. you know, and that's what we agreed to do with one another. And, wow. and I, and that's really what catapulted me into this movement is, is the fact that it's okay to, to break yourself open yeah. and, and be willing to accompany someone. Um, even if you're terrified. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's, I mean, this bringing back a lot of memories. My mom was diagnosed when I was when I was 16 years old. Wow. And, and I was really I th the last uh, child to be at home. And <laughs> I mean, it sounds like your sister was very lucky to have you and to be emotionally connected. And so you knew to be present, you knew to be emotionally there. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, like my family was very typical of a lot of other families. We were just very emotionally disconnected. Mm -hmm. We did not know how to be there. My father was the son, he, he was, you know, he's the son of an alcoholic dad. And so um, he was not, and still not today, I mean, I think he's, um, he's 90 years old, still not able to mm -hmm be emotionally present um and that was unfortunate um so we floundered on our own yeah you know, survived on our own as fast as we could um and so anyway i don't know why um so it's a uh, you know uh, people do the best that they can yes um and really this is the heart of the discussion right is talking about this avoidance that we have apparent avoidance that we have in this nation yes surrounding um the discussion of death which is inevitable right uh, the 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 what you just said that people do the best they can i think is it's one of the most beautiful phrases I think one can hear when it comes to dying because we aren't any of us experts, right? And so I, I, I really feel that, that we have to help one another understand that, that it's okay not to know what to do even. It's okay to just show up and try to do the best that you can. Um, and humans, we're messy. Humans are messy. There's there's no formula that says, okay, if this is happening, then do ABC and everything's going to be okay. It, we, our lives just don't work that way. We're messy about everything. And, and dying just is another part of that mess. And so I think what, what it is, is that the, if we can find within ourselves to be okay to be a mess and okay to be afraid and okay to say, you know, I don't know what to do. So let's, let's not know what to do together. Mm. Right? Let's be together and not know what to do, rather than be apart and not know what to do. Right? Yeah, yeah. And what occurred to me, you're exactly right. What occurred to me was, you know, there's, there's two things going on. One, we can have a dialogue about this. We need to have a, a, a necessary dialogue about this in the nation. But at the same time, dialogues can be very standoffish in the arm's length. And so uh, we can uh, use objective terms and, and uh, not relate to them. 
Uh, the other side is learning how an experiential quality of learning how to be present when someone is um, going through suffering. And that's something that I had to personally learn over time. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to, um, to uh, engage and, you know, and find some things that, that kind of opened that door so I can have that experiential quality to, you know, really connect with other people. So my kids don't have to go through the same thing that I had to go through. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, it's challenging because if, if you don't, if as a human being, you know, we, we know what we know and we kind of know what we don't know. It's really hard to put our finger on not knowing what we don't know. Right. So if, if, if you don't have the awareness that, you know, maybe, maybe I, I'm not vulnerable enough, or maybe I'm, I'm too afraid to be honest with my feelings. Yeah. Like you, you have to have to have a way to sort of crack that open. Um, I, I think, you know, going back to your original question about what goes through a person's mind when the diagnosis is announced, that, that is that opportunity. That mm -hmm. it's that opportunity to say, oh, oh, this is what it feels like to be terrified. Yeah. This is what it feels like and feel my heart rate increasing and I feel dizzy and, you know, uh, to, to be able to identify what is going on and be willing to share that with another human being, uh, you know, the, if, in, in my sister's process, that was the way we were able to connect mm -hmm. to say, okay, I don't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk about it. So let's just think about talking about it. Let's just you know, crack the door open a little bit at a time until we can get our arms around it. Because otherwise you're, you're left with, like, I, you know, I, I, I remember receiving a call from a friend of hers, dear friend uh, of hers who wanted to come see her, but she said, you know, I know she's really sick and I know she needs her rest. And, and I told her friend on the phone, it's like, if you don't come see her, you're not going to get to see her. You know, she, she doesn't need her rest. She needs to see you see her. Yeah, yeah. And um, sometimes when someone, people say that, it just occurs to me, I'm sorry, when sometimes when people say, oh no, I, I can't see, she needs her rest, is more avoidance than uh, legitimately allowing someone to rest. Well, it, it could be, or, or it could be just, I, you know, I think there's a great deal of naivety around, um, you know, oh, you know, it seems considered, oh, this person's really sick. I don't want to interfere. I don't want to, you know, I want them to have their rest, but, but, you know, when you, when you hear a diagnosis of stage four cancer, that generally means it's, it's not a simple thing like a cold the person's going to get over, right? Mm -hmm. um, thankfully, her friend heard me say what I said and came to see her. Yeah. And, and the look on my sister's face when her friend walked in the room was, was amazing to witness. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. It, because it, it just, you know, that, that human connection that she could have one more time before she died. 
And that's what she, she just wanted to see her friend one more time. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, it occurred to me, when I fell into behavior analysis, um, behavior analysis was taught in a very cold matter of fact way. And I was able to get through graduate school and, and, and take the exam. I, I wasn't taught any of the, the, of the therapeutic relationship, the, this, uh, this intimacy with another human being compassion. And so it's just strictly the science. And so there's a lot of people out there with, with uh, you can dissect behavior and, and analyze behavior, talk about it. Um, and so relating to you, was it natural for you to move in that direction? Um, did, you, did you have those um, qualities about you um, early on? that you were able to connect and feel and be present? Um, I didn't, I, I had to learn those as well. Um, I, I, um, I was a, an EMT for a short period of time and I had studied as a homeopath um, and with holistic medicine. And so I, I had an understanding of how really like the mind body complex goes together like it's you know th there is first the human being and then the disease um and so when i was able to show up for my sister i was i was not showing up because she was sick i was showing up because she was my sister and because of our relationship so it's a big difference yeah um and and I, you know, I had just started reading a little bit of Brene Brown about vulnerability and, uh, you know, I grew up also in an alcoholic family where we didn't, the only emotions that got expressed were the ones that would keep my dad calm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I had that awareness as well that we, as a family, had not done really well in developing ourselves uh, with any sense of vulnerability. That meant weakness, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I, again, that moment of clarity that I had where I thought, okay, it hurts to be losing her, but I can't imagine what it's like to be losing everything. And I just felt like I needed to jump into that deep pool with her. I, I, don't, I don't know exactly why, other than I knew she needed somebody who wouldn't tell her you can beat this and, and avoid talking about it. Yeah, yeah. Why? Um, shifting gears, what makes us, uh, you know, people in a state such as Maine who are willing to pass and have this discussion, willing to pass legislation like this, uh, different from states like Texas or uh, other states that have not even considered legislation? Well, I think, again, Maine, Maine has been trying since 1995. So, so the issue has been in front of people, at least in some form or another, for 25 years. Yeah. Um, I think what, you know, any social change is going to happen when there's pressure for it to happen. So number one, if this is something that the people of Texas want, even if their politicians don't want it, th there has to be an organized movement that continues to bring the issue forward, continues to tell the personal stories, and continues to put pressure on politicians to, to listen. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, if it, if it took Maine, we had seven different attempts here in Maine before we finally passed it in 25 years. I, I feel also like probably within one or two more generations, things are, are going to be shifting. Frankly, a, a lot of uh, folks who um, are morally opposed to this, um, you know, they're, they're going to die too. Politicians are going to die. Those, those of us who um, seem to have narrower views of, of these ideas, there are younger generations coming up that don't share those same views. You know, when I, I talk with younger people about this issue, particularly if they've witnessed grandma or grandpa die already, it's a no-brainer to them. That's yeah. like, of course, this makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there's that component. I think, you know, I don't, I don't really know much about the demographics of, of Texas or uh, the political landscape of Texas, but certainly that plays a role, the identity, state identity um, of who, who Texas is and how... Um, how your politics kind of revolve around your state personality, I think are gonna come into play. Yeah, um, as I said, I mean, there's a, there really is a strong dissonance in Texas. We are very much about choice in everything else. Don't interfere. The government is not going to interfere in my business and how I want to choose and how to live with the exception of abortion right. and death with dignity. Is that's interesting because, you know, if you if you go back and look at the history of this movement in the United States, it originally was a Republican issue. It was about autonomy. It was about the government staying out of my business. Right. It was about maintaining control over your life. Mm-hmm. I, I and I'm not sure why that has shifted over the past 25 years. Um, a, a lot of issues have shifted over the past 25 years in terms of, um, you know, political party focus and, and so forth. Um, uh, you know, here, here in Maine, when the law passed, we, we had two Republicans who supported it, two. Mm-hmm. One wa- was a, a senator who was actually a co-sponsor on the bill. She was mm-hmm. amazing. Um, and the other was a representative in the House. Mm-hmm. That was it. So there is so there is a strong uh, uh, political separation. I mean, so when when we talk about broad support, are we talking about most the Democrats? It tend it tends to split out that way, even though it is a nonpartisan issue. Right. So so it's all you know. I used to wonder if if Republicans thought they wouldn't die. Like you know, uh-huh. I just didn't understand it. Um, I think part of it too is, you know, those for those more moderate uh, Republicans who do have a view that that this is an acceptable uh, uh, practice for for patients who want to have that control. I don't know that there is much political safety in being public with that, given the dynamics of the GOP overall. Yeah. Um, so there's that as well as is how difficult is it um, to to have a a, a more uh, moderate view on this topic uh, within a party that just doesn't have a moderate view of it. You know? Yeah, and I was also thinking too, when you're talking about uh, the evangelical right has their stranglehold on the Republican Party, um, 
do you think that plays a large part in it where really the argument comes down for them this is not what god wants this is a, I, yeah i think that is a, a huge part of it and and um you know, frankly, I, I don't know how we overcome that. The, the recognition, I think, you know, as an interfaith minister, I have an understanding that, that a human being who has a belief system, no matter what it is, that is something that is sacred to that person. And it's my obligation to help them make meaning of their lives within the context of their own faith tradition. This other, this evangelical movement that says, you know, this is my belief and it needs to be your belief too, or I'm going to put, ensure that laws go in place so that you can't express your beliefs. I I don't, I don't think that's um, a a, a spiritual value. That's something else, clearly, at least in my mind, outside of spiritual values. Yeah. Mm -mm. Well, maybe it has to do too, you know, this blending those fairly recent blending from uh, the evangelical movement in politics and how there is really no separation right now. There is a strong political evangelical wing Mm -hmm. in our government uh, that, um, you know, uh, creates laws and rules that maintain their own power. Yes. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I, I, I grew up hearing about separation of church and state. I don't think it's ever really existed. Uh, I really don't. Yeah. And it's an ideal, but no, not practically anyway. Yeah, and and I mean, sadly, we are a diverse country, and yeah. yet diversity is not something that's valued, in uh, particularly in expressions of faith. And I, I don't understand that either. Well, then I understand too. Maybe you can explain this. There is, um, you know, no European country outside of, let's say, Switzerland, Norway, has death with dignity laws, do they? No. In the European Union? No. And yet they're not, they're more, they're, you know, they're considered a lot more secular than the United States. The United States is considered very um, Christian, a very Christian, strong Christian nation. European Union, for the most part, is secular. I think that laws have been trying to pass in the UK and have been turned down. And uh, can you talk a bit more about that and what the concerns are with that? Well, I I, I do still believe it is uh, organized religious opposition. I mean, if you you look at the the stories that are coming out of the countries that are uh, and have been for a number of years trying to pass these laws. Um, it, it's always the church that is opposing it. And I think I think the church has as much influence in their politics as it does in our politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, questions like, uh, so there are 10 states in the United States, correct? Or 10 jurisdictions yes. in the United States, correct? Uh, one of the jurisdictions being Washington, D.C. Um, and it really all originated with this Oregon law. Um, one of the states is Montana, which really surprised me. Well, what was going on? Do you, do you know the history of Montana? Um, I, I do, not, not deeply, but the, um, the ability for medical aid in dying came about in Montana as the result of a lawsuit that was brought uh, by a gentleman who had lung cancer against the state. 
stating that he felt the the constitution, the state constitution of Montana protected his right to uh, have a conversation with his physician and qualify and it protected his physician's right to prescribe medication for him um, if he was terminally ill. And the, the ultimate result of that uh, lawsuit was that the state Supreme Court of Montana stated there are no laws currently in statute, there's no current statute that prohibits this. And that's the way it stood. And so um, it has been essentially uh, uh, protected as a, a right of a citizen to make that decision for themselves. Um, and the challenge for Montana is every year they face, or pretty much every year, they face a bill coming forward by someone who wants to interfere with that. So just recently, I don't remember the bill number, um, but just recently a bill was brought forward to try to remove physician protections so that if a physician did support a patient's decision, they would no longer be protected under the law. Yeah, and, and see, that was my next question was, I mean, it, seemed, it would seem like next, uh, next cycle, tons of bills would be proposed to right. oppose that. Right, um, and interestingly enough, this one, so this one ended in a tie vote, which, which uh, meant the bill was not going to move forward to remove the protections. The next step that the legislature took was, was voting to table the bill indefinitely. And it was overwhelmingly tabled. Mm -hmm. So that tells me that there are, are lawmakers in the state of Montana who support this process for patients and don't wanna see it overturned mm -hmm. by the number of people who voted to table it in, indefinitely. They didn't yes. necessarily vote um, you know, against the bill itself, but they voted to table it. Right, right. So I, I found that pretty fascinating. Yeah, well, which which tells me too, this is the, uh, important to the values of the people in Montana. Right. Right. This is an important issue and the important values uh, across Republicans. When we're talking about approximately 72% of the American people support such legislation, there's not 72% Democrats. Right. A lot of those are Republican values as well. Um, and do you find that, um, on this kind of theories, um, many legislators in, uh, well, while they're Republican or Democrat, they have their own value. They know what the values are um, in their district, but then they vote according to their party. And the part, if the party is opposed, they're opposed. Yes, or they vote according to their personal values yeah. um, and, right. and ignore the values of their constituency. I mean, interestingly enough, the, the previous two sessions I was involved here in Maine, we had a, a Republican senator who sponsored the bill. And he, he was very much on board with this issue and very much recognized that a person's need for autonomy uh, right. in decision-making around end of life. Um, and he, boy, did he get barbecued for that. You know, he, I mean, he was um, for having that stance. And interestingly enough too, I mean, we, we had had Republican lawmakers who would not publicly support the bill, but who privately did. Mm. And, and for whatever reason, whether it was, um, you know, they, they worried about losing their seat or votes, or I don't know what their concerns were, um, 
but but they couldn't publicly support the bill. Yeah, well, and you know, it usually comes down to power money, and those who those who donate, right? The very few donors that can donate a lot of money uh, may have very conservative interests. So, yeah, uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time, but but I do want to uh, talk about um, the. the where the movement is going from here, what states now are popping up that are just really on the cusp and about to pass legislation, uh, and where you see your where you see the movement and your job um, five or ten years out down the road. Sure. So um, as we speak, there there will be a hearing today in the state of New Mexico with the Senate Judiciary Committee on their bill. Uh, I don't know if you have been following New Mexico at all. Um, they have been trying for a long time uh, to pass legislation. Um, and it's, I'm cautiously optimistic. You never really know how these things are gonna turn out. But I, I would say it's likely that New Mexico will be the, the next state, if not this year, then in their next session. Um, New York and Massachusetts, of course, are, are working on legislation, Arizona, Nevada, um, and a, a number of states across the country, but those, um, those states I just mentioned have really been consistently working yeah. um, towards passage for, for a number of years. Um, Which surprised me because I thought that Massachusetts and New York would already have that legis kind of le legislation. And New York, I know, has been kind of bouncing back in the last, um, the, you know, the last round um, failed. Right. So, but anyway. But. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and Massachusetts too. Last year, or I guess last session, their bill finally um, came out of a committee with a, a, a positive vote. So that's usually like the first step is once you get a, a public hearing and you can get a committee to pass a bill favorably. That sort of is what helps the momentum going forward. Until then, you know, there's a representative down in the state of Kansas who who uh, he submits a bill because he has constituents who who want it, um, and he knows he can't even get a hearing on it. But he's going to do his due diligence yeah. and keep his commitments to his constituents um, and submit the bill. Mm -hmm. So you know, uh, political climate I think has everything to do with with whether a bill can gain traction. Okay. All right. And so picturing 10 years down the road? 10 years down the road? Wow. I, I, would, I would like to be able to say, I think I'm, I'm, I tend to be optimistic. I would like to be able to say that this, this could be an option available to any state 10 years down the road. Wow. I'm not, I, I think that's overly optimistic. You know, we, we, we live in a country where we can't even agree that we should have equitable access to voting. <laughs> let alone you know, access to making our own end of life choices. Um, so we, we have a lot to overcome yeah. Uh, yeah. On, on many fronts in our society in order to be able to move forward um, equitably. But yeah. I do think you know, in, in one to two generations, I think the landscape's gonna look very different on this. And I think too, you know, one of the things we don't really even know the outcome of is in, in the past 12 months, over half a million people have died in this country. Death, death is not a stranger to us anymore. And death is a very public thing right now, tragically so. Yeah. 
you know, if you do the math on that, that is one person every 60 seconds mm -hmm. for the past year who've died a COVID death. Mm -hmm. And you hear the stories of how I, I actually watched a family gather around an iPad mm -hmm. to be with their loved one as their loved one was being intubated mm -hmm. because they couldn't go in the room. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, we, we are a country literally, I think brought to our knees right now with grief and loss. Yeah. And we have to be willing to, to face what that means um, and find our way forward in a, in a more compassionate, uh, meaningful way for patients and families. Yeah. We have to. Thank you for bringing that up because I mean, I, I really think that COVID is a game changer in that. You know, everything I see is a double-edged sword. COVID has been devastating and has brought a lot of death, but not only like death and disability, cost, so forth. The, the, the positive side of it is that was forcing us is creating this dialogue and broadening our perspective. People die and not only die, but they suffer. Yes. And we can do something about it. We right. have the ability now, medicine has evolved now to where we can alleviate that suffering and bring families together and make it just seems so beautiful to me when when Brittany Menard and I'll, I'll probably kind of put this um, clip in. Uh, Brittany Menard's uh, talked about how she wanted to die. Yes, she's describing, you know what? Very matter of factly, uh, you know, she was going to explore the world until and live for experiences. She she, she was going to play music. She would have and she had. Like I think nine people that she had invited and it just, it, it turned out exactly the way she wanted. Right. And what's more beautiful and intimate than that? I, I agree. And why, why, why is that a bad thing? I mean, you yeah. know, I, I, I feel like this is my personal feeling. When a human being transitions out of their body, we should be able to have have some sort of celebration around that the same way we do when someone is born. Yeah. You know, it's a big event. Yes. And and for for that person leaving, I for my sister, you know, the morning of the day she died, she said she wanted to taste coffee again. One more time. And so, so I got a teaspoon of coffee for her and honest to God, Hugh, the look that crossed her face when that coffee rested on her tongue, what was heaven. And it, and to me, it was amazing that like how beautiful to be able to leave this world. Raspberries was the other taste she wanted to leave the world with the taste of coffee and raspberries on your lips yeah. in yeah. the arms of the people who love you. Yeah. I don't I don't think any of us could hope for something bigger than that. No, no. I mean, you know what? It's just that's what really like life funnels down to the taste of coffee on your tongue and being around people that you love, not doing all these big massive things that you have to do something that matters to matter in the world. It's you know, we just have this uh we have this 
um, it, it, you know, this um, ability now to turn uh, the kind of meaning in this country yes. of what life is all about, what humanity is all about, what the, um, life, uh, what our purpose is. And it's not about money. Right. And it's not about uh, satisfying job requirements. It's not about looking good. It's about living and connecting. It's about yes. compassion. It's about, um, you know, knowing that when you're on your deathbed, that you can have the people around you that, that care about you. Yes. Yeah, I, I couldn't happen. agree more. It's like the what who who are we without our stories and without the people that we love i mean that is what what creates meaning in our lives right yeah 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 um last question i promise what is the so if if i wanted to get involved in the state of texas where there's no dialogue there's no legislation and i wanted to help organize what would one what, what would i have to do what are the resources up there? Well, um, with National, our organization, we we support grassroots movements in states to be able to help you um, learn the issue of how to organize. We can help with a little bit of infrastructure or seed money to, you know, often you need a website or something like that to try to get going. And then, um, you know, to just uh, look at resources that um, that deal with grassroots organizing. Um, the way I did it in Maine is I started with a handful of people who were interested and ultimately the, those people know people and they know people and, and ultimately we passed a law. So it, it um, have an interest, bring your voice to that interest. Don't let your lawmakers off the hook uh, and, and know that it's not going to happen in a weekend. It, it is a long-term issue um, and you've got to be in it for the long haul. Yeah, right. But you know what? If history tells us anything, that culture can uh, be put to change. You Absolutely. Know, you know how, how quickly culture, the culture in Texas is, in fact, changing as yes. we speak. Um, so um, I just would encourage anybody to who, who feels passionate about this movement to get involved. And where can they donate? What what, what um, they they can donate to Death with Dignity National Center. Visit our site, deathwithdignity.org. There's a, a, a menu item that says in your state. You can click on that. Click on the state of Texas. Write your lawmakers from, from that website. Uh, certainly contact us if, um, if you're interested in grassroots organizing. Um, and, and we would be happy to be able to support uh, the folks in Texas to ultimately win this for their state as well. Yes, yeah, we would too. Thank you so much. Uh, it was so. It was. Uh, it was a pleasure. It really, really was a pleasure. Thank and you, Hugh, yeah. for having me. And and I, I feel like I have um, made a new connection to to uh, at a vulnerable level. And I really appreciate the fact that you asked me to be here today. That was an honor. Yeah. Thank you so much. Spear on the ground, hold your breath, try to scare yourself to death Bury your bones under the dirt and tear at your heart and rip your shirt And stomp your feet in disgust, curse the grey skies if you must But you'll find when you are done
Bye. 